Hello, all, and welcome to your weekly tech news hour. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. We're going to be talking about the week in technology news. And, oh, what a week it was, is, slash, will be. I don't know if I can guarantee that with any sense of certainty. But we know technology news will happen, certainly. Uh, their companies will still persist to exist, despite the efforts of some, perhaps, regulatory bodies. It's all good. But we're going to get started here. Big news kind of came out on Friday late afternoon, almost like they were burying it. Not sure why they would be doing that. But sources were telling the Wall Street Journal published, I guess, uh, and they had sources saying that the U.S. FTC Federal Trade Commission, for those of you not in the know, have voted three to two to fine Facebook a certain sum of money. Now, this has been part of a long going negotiation, I guess, with Facebook. There was the possibility of them going to court, although... Based on everything I saw, this was never much of a possibility. It seemed like this was always going to be a settlement because no one wanted to sit years and years in court to deal with this. So the FTC agreed to a settlement for $5 billion for Facebook. Now, you may be saying, okay, on the face of it, objectively, by any common sense notion of the word, $5 billion is, I'm going to say, a lot of money. It is several Scrooge McDuck vaults worth of money, which is how I measure currency and wealth uh, in my infantile way. Um, to give this some context, this is by far the largest fine that the FTC has ever levied against a technology company. Previously, their record had been $22 million. So you can see there's several orders of magnitudes there. Back in 2012, they fined Google $22 million for Privacy violations, all sorts of uh, things that Google does that we just all assume Google does. And they're like, I guess you should pay some money at some point. And this is kind of where they're at with Facebook. Now, Facebook has had a little bit of a longer history with the FTC way back in 2011. Do we remember 2011? It was a simpler time. You may not have owned a smartphone back then. Maybe you probably did. You probably owned your first smartphone and it was terrible. That's okay. But all the way back then, there was an FTC investigation, and Facebook agreed to do all sorts of audits. They said, we're not going to violate privacy. But interestingly, there were no, and and basically set up so that if there were any privacy violations, it would be theoretically easier for the FTC to find them or have some punitive action on them down the line. And theoretically, make CEO, founder, and um, uh, Grand Poobah in chief, Mark Zuckerberg, theoretically personally liable for any kind of uh, privacy snafus as Facebook is wont to do from everything I've seen from this $5 billion fine. It's just that we're just looking at paying some money. And again, $5 billion is not an insubstantial amount of money in their later uh, in their um, most recent earnings report. I think they generated 15 billion in revenue for a quarter and I think they're on pace to do something like $53 billion for the year in revenue. That's not profit necessarily. So Facebook isn't going away because of this fine. So you may be, so if you haven't been following this, you may be saying, oh, this seems like they've done some damage. You know, Facebook did wrong. They're paying this big, gigantic fine. It's the biggest fine ever. It's 200,000 times bigger. Not 200,000 times. It's 200 times bigger than the last biggest fine ever. Maybe maybe this sets a precedent for finding big tech. But interestingly, like I said, it was a 3-2 decision. Now you may be thinking, oh, okay, we had some, you know, some Democrats voted for it. Maybe some pro-business Republicans voted against it. Oh, no. The, all the Republicans on it reportedly on the FTC voted 
for the fine. And the two or the two against uh, were Democrats that were looking for more punitive action against Facebook. And the the rumor or the reporting is on this is not confirmed, but the reporting is on this, that they were looking for more structural change within Facebook, taking away some of the power that Mark Zuckerberg has. If you don't know it, Mark Zuckerberg basically has an unbreakable hold on voting shares of Facebook stock as being founder CEO. It's it's structured in that Mark Zuckerberg will never lose power unless he wants to, um, which I guess he just will dislike um, running all of our lives. That's, maybe you get bored with that. I don't know. But the idea here being that Facebook structurally will not change. There is no, at this time, from this FTC settlement, there is no um, motivation or there is no uh, imperative to break up Facebook, as some people have called for, that we've heard for in, uh, in this early stages of the, the 2020 presidential campaign. The settlement is not strictly speaking is not 100% through it has to be approved by the justice department although i've i've heard that in 99.999% of situations this is a rubber stamp they will trust the work that the ftc has done although given the current political climate who knows but it seems like um this is going to go through almost for sure like i said largest ever um and to give you some context though what you know some people are saying okay this is Facebook did wrong. They've received their fine. We can go about our lives. Clearly, they're not going to violate our privacy anymore. I think savvier people are saying that, hey, them paying a bunch of money but being allowed to operate as they have always had with a history of continually violating privacy, pushing the envelope when it comes to this sort of stuff. Uh, maybe we shouldn't like trust Facebook and maybe we should have some more, um, you know, maybe we, should, maybe we should have gotten a little bit more out of this. Maybe it was worth going to court over it. Or holding their feet a little further to the fire. Again, because, and especially because you have that 2011 FTC investigation and ruling kind of into Facebook, setting the groundwork theoretically for putting further punitive action in place. Now, some could argue that the fine wouldn't be as big as it was if they hadn't already violated a 2011 ruling. We'll see. But in their latest earnings report, like I said, they had reported in April about $15 billion, that's with a B, in revenue. And the the big thing that I saw in there was that they really missed on their earnings per share, meaning that their shareholders or that they made less profit per share. They still made a profit, but the reason it was so down was because they had already allocated three billion dollars to pay this fine. So what's another two billion dollars on top of that? So basically, Facebook already has this in the rearview mirror. This is not a big deal. They're still a profitable company after this fine. They're still going to make all the money. They're still growing at like a 30% rate. They're still adding subscribers. So in my mind, I, I'm not quite as on the, uh, this is a travesty of justice and this is the worst thing that the FTC has ever done. Clearly, I do think this sets a precedent. I do think this at least shows that the age of slap on the wrist, I mean, a $22 million fine for Google, even in 2012, I mean, 2012, Google was still this ginormous company, right? And $22 million is literally nothing. It's a rounding error for them. $5 billion is a, you know, based on the the year, if you, if you go back to the last year from last quarter, right? That's 10% of their overall revenue. That's like not an insubstantial amount of money, especially when you look at some of the, the fine structures in what some would argue is a more stringent privacy regulation or any kind of privacy regulation like GDPR is in Europe the general data protection regulation that they have over there. So I, I'm not 
in the camp of this is a travesty of justice, Facebook got away scot-free. Clearly, they would prefer not to pay $5 billion, let's be honest. But I think this is just kicking the can down the road. This is just asking Facebook to keep asking to, to keep operating the way they are unless you do something where you can divest Mark Zuckerberg of some power, you at least credibly threaten to, if not break up parts of Facebook's just giant monopoly on all things social media. I don't think you're giving them any real incentive to change here at the end of the day. How this will impact future privacy fines will be seen. It is interesting to note kind of the same week that this occurred in the UK, the they levied their biggest GDPR fine, right? Now, if you haven't been following, if you haven't been following a European <laughs> privacy laws, <laughs> like a normal person would be, uh, GDPR was passed like two years ago, and there was this big kerfuffle because it it's a very, very, um, has a lot of impacts for privacy. It basically says that consumers have a right to their data. They have a right to have it, to know what a company has stored about them, has a right to ask for it to be deleted and for it to be deleted very quickly. A lot of very consumer-focused privacy protections and obligations that company have to take on. The enforcement of it has been, I think, hasn't matched the ambition of what the regulation was put out to be, but I think we all knew that going in there. That being said, the UK's Information Commissioner's Office fined British Airways for a 2018 data breach that affected 380,000 people. So, you know, already British Airways, a much, much, much smaller company than Facebook. 380,000 people, much, much, much smaller than any privacy implications that Facebook have, given that they have literally billions of people on the platform. But they were fined 183 million pounds. That's British money. That's British for money. For that data breach. And they basically said, hey, um, you let 380,000 uh, people's names, credit cards, addresses, travel booking details, logins. You just, you just kind of biffed it there. What I think is very interesting, though, is not just the amount of the fine. In fact, it's less than it could have been at its maximum. GDPR allows for 4% of total company revenue or worldwide turnover is the phrase that they use. Basically means all of their revenue. Uh, up to that, the British Airways fine was about 1.5% of their 2017 revenue. Still a, a pretty hefty fine. Again, considering if we look at what Facebook was fined for the Cambridge Analytica scandal, if you remember that, uh, a few years or a year or so ago, that was... I mean, like, like literally, like, you couldn't slice a penny thin enough to measure the percentage of what that was for Facebook. It was a laughably tiny fine that no way punished Facebook commensurate to the outrage that it generated. So the UK showing some teeth here with GDPR enforcement. Um, obviously, British Airways can, can dispute that. But the precedent they set up is that it's not just that people had their information stolen and then hackers used it and it was on the dark web and people had credit cards stolen. It's the very fact that this this data for consumers has value is a big shift. And I think that's the most important, more so than the amount of the fine. I'm sure, British, again, British Airways, I'm sure, does not, would prefer to have, be 183 pounds richer, 183 million pounds richer, excuse me. But setting up the precedent that the that companies have an obligation to protect this data for consumers, if they're going to be holding it for consumers and profiting off it, I might add. And I think that's kind of what's missing in a lot of ways from a lot of the U.S. conversations about this. Yes, it's great that Facebook, that, that we're finally, I think, starting to give a lot more scrutiny to big tech, that we're stopping to give them the benefit of the doubt, that we have to prove that they have 
um, that there's a reason they need to collect all of the data and that, um, you know, they, they just have carte blanche just because you click, you, like you accepted a cookie and you didn't even realize it. Now all of a sudden Facebook knows where you live and how much you earn and, and or Amazon or any of these companies, not just Facebook, Google, all of these companies. Right. And that's what I think, as I think we're starting to get some collective will in the U.S. to look at this more seriously. We're seeing states take data privacy a lot more seriously. We've seen California enact some pretty uh, GDPR-like regulations. We've seen Vermont try to get a handle on data brokers with some variable success. We've seen this from reporting on there. We will see if this is the end of, you know, with this, this giant FTC fine, will this be the end of the conversation or is this just the start of actual policy enforcement of the skepticism that I think we all have about big tech, we will see. Speaking of big tech, there was an interesting study out, a report out from the, I don't know if they're an analyst firm. They're called Stream Elements, so it makes me think that they're not serious business people, but maybe they are. Uh, But there's a new report out uh, looking at uh, video live streaming, which I thought was really interesting. Now, this is what the kids like to do. This is where we're talking about things like Basically watching someone live on video, as you're doing if you're watching my Facebook live stream right now. Hi, thanks for watching. But looking at the market share for that and who the big players are in that. And if again, if you are not familiar with this, if you are something, someone saying, that's something the youths do, you may not know uh, of a company called Twitch TV. They're actually owned by Amazon or bought by them a couple of years ago now. But Twitch is far and away. I think I think if you follow tech, you know Twitch is kind of the leader in this space. But I, what was interesting about this study is that it put a definitive number on just how dominant their market share is here. Uh, and they and Stream Elements found that seventy two point two percent of live stream video views in Q two were on Twitch, and that equated to about two point seven two billion hours of video watched live, which is some cuckoo bananas numbers. In comparison, looking at some of the other competitors in the space, the, the the big three kind of competing with Twitch in this space are YouTube Live, uh, Facebook Gaming, and Microsoft's Mixer, which is actually, I think, a little bit older than some of these and had a little bit of a following, which is now, in typical Microsoft fashion, is not cool and is, is fading off. Uh, but YouTube Live uh, came in second. And, and again, Twitch, 72% of the market, 2.7 billion hours watched. YouTube Live is in second with 735 million hours watched. Uh, Facebook Gaming came in at number three with 197. So you can see a really, uh, you know, a steep drop off from Twitch to YouTube, steeper drop off, maybe steeper. I don't know. I don't know the percentage, but another big drop off from number two to number three. And then Microsoft's Mixer actually fell to number four, kind of compared over time uh, with 112 million hours watched in the quarter. What is interesting, though, here is... What Stream Elements said is yes, this was Twitch is still dominant. Their market, their you know their their market share inc- actually increased, but overall, if you look at their numbers, you actually saw a dec- a two percent decline in overall hours, kind of indicating that yes, they they are the giant in the room right now. But because it's live, there is this impermanence about it, right? This isn't something where you build up this huge backlog of videos on something like YouTube or, you know, another video platform or something like that, where you really, there's really no good way to move all of that content over and building up that channel and moving all that over. Yes, you have followers on Twitch and you, you know, it would be probably to your disadvantage if you're a big disadvantage if you're a streamer to switch platforms just overnight. But theoretically, if people are into you and into what you are streaming, moving that over is not 
as big of a deal as moving an entire video library over, right? You could still just do a live stream and it's still the live thing that people want. It's just in a different place. And so they're saying, you know, this maybe should be a little bit of a warning sign for Twitch, seeing that decline as every other player, basically, as, as the overall amount of hours watched increased, right? They were seeing a decline. Interesting tell by Twitch. I would not put, if I were Twitch, I would not be too worried, namely because YouTube is your number two. And yes, YouTube is this giant in online video. They're also a disastrous division of Google and a company in and of themselves when it comes to any kind of new feature planning. Basically, if you just want to upload a video and have a place for people to watch it, YouTube is fine. It does the thing. They have all sorts of tools. If you want to monetize that, that's great. Anytime they want to move over into any other category, whether it's YouTube gaming, YouTube live, they have five different products. No one knows exactly where to go. Like, I feel like this would be, I don't know, a hundred million hours more if YouTube actually had a consolidated effort of, okay, what is YouTube gaming? What is YouTube live? What is YouTube red? What is YouTube premium? Like, Figure out how to make that coherent to consumers. And the 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 true joy of YouTube is that they are fundamentally incapable incapable of doing that. And then there's Facebook gaming. I don't know who the people watching Facebook gaming are. Um they're obviously very happy with their lives, and I'm happy for them. I've just never met anyone that was into it. Um I will say, you know, my experience using Facebook Live just to stream this show. I mean, it is, it, the tools are nice. It's very relatively easy to get going with it. You know, you can see the comments. You can see who's watching. Um, there's tools to tag effects. Like, it's, it's, it's a fine platform. It's like many things that Facebook does. It's maybe not my first choice, but it's convenient for its very large reach, and that will always be one of the things that Facebook can offer is that they're really good at getting things in people's faces. Hey, who knew? And then Microsoft, I just imagine in like, like Mixer will exist for 10 more years, but we won't know about it for the next nine years, right? And then we'll, we'll see a news story that says they killed it. And we'll go like, oh yeah, those 20 people are really bummed about that. The other interesting note about this though, is looking at Twitch. It's a very top heavy service in terms of who's watching what. One of the big complaints about Twitch is you have people that have been doing streams, whether it's gaming, whether it's just, you know, talking to a camera and, hey, I'm doing my vlog thing. And saying, you know, it's really hard to get to get viewers, even though it, it is this giant platform. It's it's the biggest one out there. Uh, but uh, this this report had found that two billion hours of Twitch's two point seven billion hours watched came from the top five thousand channels. Meaning that yes, they have a million subscribers, but the vast majority of those are going to a very small number of people. However, I will say, basically, when you take off that two billion. And, like, you just spun those off into their new service. That's Twitch Prime or whatever like that. And it's just the very top streamers. What would be left is still basically what YouTube Gaming has, right? So if you lop off the biggest percentage of their views, they're still, like, the number two in terms of volume of live streaming content. So that just gives you a sense of just how big Twitch is. Yes, it's very top-heavy. Yes, that could lead to some ecosystem problems down the line. But they still have a lot, a lot of people. Interesting security story, you know, kind of talking, we were talking about Facebook's privacy issues. Well, there was a big privacy problem with the folks at Zoom. If you've ever been in any kind of uh, teleconference in the last three, four years, I guess, Zoom is kind of the hip teleconference app. And by hip, I mean the least hateable. Let's be very honest here. All teleconferencing solutions are the work of some infernal being. I don't know if it's the devil. 
but maybe some sort of succubi. I'm not sure. It is infernal in nature. Zoom is like the the most outward circle of of that hell, right? Where like Socrates is hanging out or something. I read Dante's Inferno once. Um, so they've gotten this reputation as the cool teleconferencing solution context given. However, a security reacher named Jonathan Leachu, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, uh, found this really interesting vulnerability where one of the big draws of Zoom is that it doesn't require you to install a whole bunch of stuff to get going. If you've ever used something like a Cisco WebEx or something like that, you click on it, it has to install this app, then it has to install this thing in your browser, and what should just be one, what feels like it should just be one click, it's like, oh, just click here to join the conference, 10 minutes later, you're 10 minutes late to the call, and then you're in a teleconference, which is the worst thing ever. The whole thing with Zoom is that they make it a lot easier. Well, the security researcher found that, at least on the Mac client of Zoom, that basically clicking on, if you if you tailored a URL correctly, and pretty simply, you know, kind of by reverse engineering how these URLs are corrected, you could have someone go to a web page, they would not have to click on anything on that web page, but it would auto-invite them and accept into a Zoom conference, turn on their camera and their microphone without ever giving them any kind of notification. So that's like bad, right? Then on top of that, it was discovered that the way Zoom is doing this is when you installed their app on a Mac, it installs this little tiny web server, a local host web server, you just kind of in the background. You don't see like an app. It's not in like your applications or anything like that. It's just kind of something that's running in the background. And if you happen to uninstall the and this is kind of the thing that's looking, and it's scanning open ports, and so it's looking for these URLs, and that's what's enabling that. But what's interesting is if you uninstalled the Zoom app, you say, hey, I don't need teleconferencing in my life. This is a hellscape. I'm uninstalling this. Uh, turns out it will automatically reinstall the Zoom app. You don't, and, it, and again, not giving you any permissions, not like popping up a thing that says, hey, do you want to install this? Just kind of do it on the sly, and then you're still back into that video conference and there was no easy way to, it wasn't like there was like a box you had to click when you were uninstalling it and it was, they just made it difficult to find. It was just this lived there uh, forever, essentially. And so that's kind of a big security issue, especially on something uh, on macOS where a lot of their appeal is that, oh, you know, you don't have to worry about security, you don't have to worry about all this antivirus stuff. Um, we're just, it's a, just a more, it's a, it's a closed garden, right? That's their, their whole approach. Uh, it's a gilded cage, very pretty. Um, and the benefit of that is you generally don't have to worry about these kind of security issues. And so uh, the security researcher, basically the the way that these kind of security vulnerabilities, when a researcher finds these, is the, the generally accepted practice is to contact the company, let them know about it, give them 90 days to fix it before you let anybody know, because it's impossible to know all of your security vulnerabilities if you're putting software out there. Give them a chance to fix it before you publish it. Some companies have what are called bug bounties where they will pay you based on the severity of the bug that you find. So that gives further motivation to kind of disclose it responsibly. And essentially he had disclosed it in March, waited 90, almost the full 90 days before Zoom ever even got back to him, enabled a quick fix that he was not all that thrilled with, basically said you could hack around that in a matter of minutes once you kind of knew that this was out there. And so I'd published it. Zoom ultimately said, okay, we're going to remove this errant web server the very interesting thing though is that apple officially came out and said hey um we rolled out this silent update i.e something you didn't even need to click on 
to kill this uninstall automatically on our platform, which isn't something that Apple publicizes that they have the power to do all that much. But it's very interesting that they can roll that out. Usually they will only do that. And you only really hear this from developers or from, you know, like Apple rumors or uh, Apple Insider or something like that, where they say, okay, the silent update was rolled out to combat the zero day vulnerability. Apple really doesn't publicize that. But Zoom, I think, has enough, is a big enough app, and this was a big enough news story for them to come out and basically publicize that they can roll up these silent, you know, these quote unquote silent updates out um, without any kind of user interaction on their part. Now, you may say, that's great. Uh, I want to be safe. No, like this isn't a feature anyone wanted, right? Um, at the same time, kind of vaguely terrifying that Apple can do that. The other thing that was interesting was, you know, Apple was very clear to say, hey, we're not going to break. This isn't breaking Zoom's app. You just have to like accept like when a request like this comes up from a URL, one, it won't auto reinstall the app. Yay. And two, you just have to click to accept it. Um, and there is a way in the Zoom settings to, when you join a conference, not automatically turn on your video camera, which is another way to mitigate this. Still, uh, a big black eye for Zoom and just a reminder of, you know, Apple owns that ecosystem kind of soup to nuts there. Some cool product news uh, this week. Nintendo announced uh, they were coming out with a new Switch console, which is cool. Uh, I own a Switch. I'm a fan. I don't have a ton of time to play it uh, with two small kids. Uh, they just turned one and two. So they keep me, they can be fairly busy. I'm not going to lie. Uh, but the new console coming out is called the Switch Mini. So if you're not familiar with the Switch, again, I, I don't know if I need to inform you about this. It's Nintendo's console. You can use it as a docked, you know, play it on your TV or you can pick it up and it's a portable gaming PC and it has a decent battery life, whatnot. The Switch Mini is really, it's not really, it is purely focused on that mobile use case, right? So for years, Nintendo has had this kind of two divisions where you had, you know, the the at-home consoles, whether it be your NES, your Famicom, if you're from Japan, Super NES, N64, yada, yada. And those would sit in your living room, turn on your TV, play it. And then they had the Game Boy, obviously the Game Boy, the DS, the uh, Advanced, whatever. They had, a, you know, they had mobile, and then they had your at-home console. There's a better word for that. I just can't think of it right now. The Switch was kind of, okay, we're going to join those two together. Yes, the, the the Nintendo 3DS is still like a thing. There's still games coming out for it. But now with the Switch Mini coming out, this is purely a mobile version of the Switch. It comes, and, and because of that, it's kind of geared uh, for that. It uh, has a smaller screen, 5.5 inches versus a 6.2 inch on the screen. So still pretty big, about as big as, I don't know, an average smartphone. Um, but a little bit smaller to be more portable. It's lighter. It loses about 0.2 pounds uh, over the original the big thing about the Switch was you could take off the controllers and you either use them on the device or use them, you know, as a more traditional controller. That now uh, is gone on the Switch Mini. Uh, these are firmly attached to the device because it doesn't. It also doesn't have the ability to dock to a TV, right? So really, not even giving you the temptation. It still uses USB-C for charging and all that stuff. I'm just assuming in software they're limiting it so you can't do USB-C to HDMI or something like that and send that signal out. I'll be very interested to see if it can be hacked to actually do that. I imagine that's purely a software limitation, uh, but we will uh, we will see. I don't know why you would, because you couldn't use the controllers anyway. Uh, and they're expecting it to get about 20 to 30% better battery life. Uh, still looking at three to seven hours in terms of battery life. The Switch has never been like the most supremely uh, portable device. I mean, the old school Game Boy was like, 
it was legendary that when the battery light came on, you could still get like three hours of play left on it or something like that. Maybe that was just me. If you gripped it really tight, it felt like it would last a little longer. Um, you know, the Switch is like, okay, you're good for a day. It's basically like a smartphone, right? Use the same chips as a smartphone. So you're only going to get so many hours of screen time in a day. Uh, rechargeable battery is not a big deal. Uh, it's going to be uh, on sale in September uh, for uh, $200. And it comes in a bunch of colors because it's Nintendo and they like colors. And that's cool. I don't like all of my electronics in gray, space gray, or silver gray. That's cool. But interesting here to see, you know, Nintendo, the the product cycle for them. You know, the Switch is a couple years old now. Console sales are slowing. For me, this is Nintendo basically saying, okay, the key... One of the interesting things that Nintendo does in general with consoles, right, is they make them profitable from the start for them to sell. Most other uh, systems, whether you're talking about the Xbox or PS4 or whatever, they actually take a loss, especially early on when they first start selling those. Because these things have, I don't know, a a 7 to 10 year life cycle, you have to, you know, kind of front load the tech into there and then sell it at a loss, hoping that people will buy however many games it takes to recoup that. And then you're there in your ecosystem and you can, you know, monetize them with online services and, and all sorts of stuff. Nintendo doesn't do that. It really has never done that. And that's usually why their devices are a little bit lower spec compared to uh, some of the, some of their competition from Sony or uh, Microsoft. But this is, I think a, a pretty ingenious way for you know, Nintendo to say, okay, we've got you to buy the first switch. And now this is so, okay, you have that one docked most of the time, and hey, your kids are fighting over when they can play, you know, which games they can play. This comes at a more, a little bit more of an accessible price point. It's like $100 off what a regular Switch would cost. But it gets you the idea of, okay, now you can own multiple of these for your household. And also, by the way, I'm sure all the game sharing is broken because Nintendo can't do anything online uh, without it being a complete disaster. So I'm sure you'll have to rebuy some games at some point. And an interesting move by them. Do I think they could have come in and cut this a little bit more aggressively or, I don't know, work on the specs a little bit? Yeah, I'm a little disappointed that it's, you know, it's $200 is the, this is the one big present you're going to get for Christmas price. And Nintendo knows how to court their market. You know, they're, they're no dummies. I wish it could have, with these specs, which is basically like a mid-range smartphone, mid-range to low-range smartphone. You know, we're talking about 5.5-inch 720p screen. What You know, whatever, a Snapdragon or a NVIDIA um, ARM processor in there. Nothing all that aggressive in terms of hardware. You come in at 150, I feel like that sells like hotcakes. Or for 200, I don't know, a little bit more of a value add. You lose a lot of capabilities with this is my only concern. The other rumor that it doesn't look like we're going to get this year is the opposite of this, right? The if this is the you know if the Switch Mini is one half of that, the Switch is kind of in the middle. You need the the Switch Max or whatever it's going to be called, which is basically the the higher end one that does better graphics, maybe isn't portable, maybe is the standalone console, and so then Nintendo can kind of play the whole field there. I don't know if that's ever going to come out, and it certainly doesn't look like unless they release it, you know, in November. Um, which would really undercut what they're trying to do with the Switch Mini here. I will be interested to see if in 2020 we're going to be seeing that again as the Switch gets longer into its life cycle and how tempting that is. We've certainly seen Microsoft and Sony extend the length of their consoles by putting out the higher spec one. You have the Xbox One X, you have the uh, PS4 Pro that came out a couple of years ago, and those basically just put higher-end components. You can charge more, and the games look a little purtier. 
I don't think that's really where Nintendo wants to play because they're never going to be able to match the graphical capabilities of those consoles for the prices that they want to sell things. Their games really aren't designed for that. And kind of the magic of Nintendo is, especially for their first party stuff, is that they can get some pretty incredible experiences on relatively low end hardware. And they're really not worried about photorealism or, um, you know, hitting 60 frames per second or something like that necessarily. Right. As long as like Zelda plays cool, that's all they really care about. If Mario says uh, it's a me, you know, and that sounds good and you can rescue the princess or something, that's fine. That's all they care about. So Switch Mini, an interesting move, I think, by Nintendo. Another interesting move here, um, kind of, uh, if you want to talk about more government agencies and who doesn't love to talk about them. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission uh, recently, you know, everyone's favorite SEC, approved the blockchain startup Blockstack to sell tokens under a new regulation. It's called Regulation A+. And what this allows them to do... so. Let's just back up here. I said a lot of words, cryptocurrency, blockchain, what's happening. Essentially, what has been going on for a number of years is there are companies that will come out and say, hey, we have this new idea for cryptocurrency. Um, Either it's going to be built on an existing blockchain like Ethereum, or we're going to be developing our own, uh, as is the case of a lot of others. These all have some sort of philosophical statement behind them, whether they're saying, okay, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be pegged to the U.S. dollar, but it's going to be, you know, designed so that it'll smooth international transactions, or it's more of a smart contract system like Ethereum, or this is going to be, hey, this is a speculative investment. It's going to replace all money, and it's going to be great, like Bitcoin. Um, it, what the, the, the purpose behind what BlockSack is trying to do is less important now that they're getting sanctioned by the government to sell it. What's interesting about this new regulation is when I say token, that basically just means a cryptocurrency for for the intents of this show. There are some distinctions depending on what project you're talking about, but they can effectively sell this cryptocurrency to anyone and that they've met, uh, you know, certain uh, financial disclosure transparency. This basically is the SEC saying, hey, this isn't a scam on its face. It may fail completely and it may be worthless sometime in the future. But this is not actively someone scamming you. And that's something that the that's a position that the SEC has not really been comfortable taking with cryptocurrency in the past. Um, Previously, Blockstack has raised uh, money uh, through token sales under Regulation D, uh, which means the SEC is like, "Uh, we're not going to touch this. We're not going to certify it or anything like that. But that means Blockstack was limited to accredited investors, a.k.a. I couldn't go online to Blockstack.com and buy a token. What's interesting about Regulation A+, is that now they can sell this basically to anybody. And it's because they have that SEC approval that they are able to do so. Now, uh, reading, you know, it's been very public that the SEC has, one, formed this regulation. It's not like a surprise that this regulation came out, right? But what's interesting is the SEC has been extremely cautious about certifying anything. The reason this is a big deal is this is the first company. There is a long line of companies that would love to be able to sell to you know, me, you, your mom and dad, other companies, stuff like that, that aren't necessarily accredited investors. And the SEC is moving very slowly about that. I don't think that's ever going to speed up. One, I don't think they are staffed to adequately do that. And two, I don't know if the SEC wants to get in that position of basically validating all of these uh, cryptocurrencies. But a big deal that this has gone through and that we're probably going to, I mean, we're certainly going to see more of these 
I think it's going to be much more of a drip than a torrent of them going forward. Uh, but essentially, uh, BlockSack is going to be selling uh, 62 million of these tokens for 30 cents each. So again, uh, a sh- slightly shy of what Bitcoin trades at, which is like $10,000 right now. They're going to be selling some of them at a discount, and then they're going to be also holding some kind of in an escrow account to pay to developers who build things on top of the Blockstack ecosystem. So uh, ways to process different payments, way to make transactions faster and stuff like that. That's what's interesting about all of these blockchain systems, which, reminder, are just basically a big ledger that lives on everyone's computer at once, just a distributed ledger. It's not really that fancy. But kind of getting the ways to speed transactions, the way to get things in and out quickly is very important. And that's where developers play into that. So interesting to see the SEC validating that under this new regulation. And we'll we'll go from there. Another interesting, uh, you know, kind of going to if um, if teleconferencing is uh, the post-apocalyptic hellscape, that's required for all of business. I'm not sure where kind of the team messaging apps are right now. I think they're like getting salt water in the middle of the desert, right? Like at first you think this is awesome and then it turns out to just kill you faster. But, you know, kind of the two big, you know, there's been a big kerfuffle over the influence of these apps, you know, kind of in corporate culture, business culture over the last couple of years. The big name in that, if you are familiar with this at all, is Slack. You probably are heard of it. So you may, your business may not use it, but you've certainly heard of it, I would hope. I guess I don't hope that, but you probably have heard of that. If I had to bet money, I'm not saying I am betting money, but if I were, I would say you've heard of Slack. If you haven't, it's basically like instant messaging for business. It's a little more organized. And the idea is to replace internal emails, right, with those. So instead of having an interminable email chain, where people are hopping in and out and CC'd and BCC'd. You don't know who's seeing what, whatever. This is more, again, of a, of a real-time chat, uh, much more asymmetric than something like email. The problem with it is people don't know any limits and they create too many channels and it just becomes just as, it becomes annoying in totally different ways than email, but it still kind of replicates all of the sprawl kind of inherent in that. However, it's big money. Slack uh, recently IPO'd. But a new uh, uh, thing that Microsoft put out says that they uh, their their own kind of competing product in this space, Microsoft Teams, may have actually surpassed what Slack has been able to do. Considering Slack is kind of the golden child of this category, it was kind of a surprise to me. They recently came out and said that they now have 13 million daily active users of Microsoft Teams, 19 million weekly active users, which are people slacking at work. And it's the, really their first time reporting these kind of direct numbers. This has kind of been out there. There have been surveys that have gone out and looked at, you know, vast companies. Hey, are, which, which one of these two platforms are you looking to adopt? Or you're looking to do like Facebook Workplace or whatever their terrible idea for it is. And the response to those has been, yeah, Microsoft Teams seems like it's gaining momentum. It's gaining, it's gaining mind share. Uh, And what's really interesting is the big, big businesses, you know, we're talking like Fortune 100 companies seem to like it a lot more than Slack. But we haven't seen these kind of hard numbers. And this is interesting because we recently got hard numbers when Slack went public. They reported in their S1 filing uh, back in April that they had 10 million daily active users and that while they were still growing at a a pretty respectable clip, I don't want to, you know, say that their, you know, their growth was stagnating. It was slowing down compared to the last two years, right? That's always a concern when you see a company IPO and, you know, maybe the hockey stick is starting to level off just a little bit. 
What's interesting here, though, is the approach that these two companies kind of take to getting their models out there. Slack's big model, and a reason that I think it it really exploded very quickly was their whole thing is let's get you in free, first of all, right? They have a free tier that's pretty full-featured. Really, the only thing that you don't get with the free tier is, like, the ability to invite, like, people to one-time channels. So it's, like, it's really only useful for your team, not with contractors. And... Uh, message storage so if you want to use it for any kind of archiving you have to go to one of their paid tiers but a ton of people use it for free in fact in their s1 filing they said out of uh almost six hundred thousand organizations that use slack only eighty-eight thousand of those are actually on the paid tier the vast majority of them using it for free now if you're slack you're kind of okay with that if you're operating alone because that's a bunch of people that are theoretically very easy to transition into paying customers over time you know maybe maybe these organizations you know we're thinking of some of these are big businesses. Most of these are, you know, smaller teams, uh, informal groups, that kind of stuff. You know, as they mature or whatever, hey, you're already using Slack. Why don't you pay for a few more features as your business grows? Hey, we'll we'll slowly take that. Add more people to the free tier. You know, make that pretty frictionless and then slowly glom on some services on top of that. That's fine if you're operating in a vacuum. The problem is, is that Microsoft bundles in Teams with Office 365 for businesses. And I don't know if you know this, but Microsoft has kind of a big footprint when it comes to businesses, right? They're kind of the default option for a lot of places. I guess like there's some weird sadists that use, I don't know, is Lotus Notes still a thing? But really that's kind of your, if if you want that kind of top-down level, yes, you could, if you're on a Mac, you can use Pages. I pity you. I truly pity you if you have to use that every day. Um, but yeah, there, there are other options out there. You can use LibreOffice or something like that. That's fine. But Microsoft has this huge install base. So you know what's even better than getting a free tier and then maybe getting talked into going to a paid service is having the paid service in something that you're already going to pay for anyway. And so it's what's interesting to me here is, one, I guess the enthusiasm gap. What I would like to see are actual like messages like how many messages per user or per day are being sent on Microsoft Teams versus you know the Slack page or the Slack free tier or something like that. Because... I see like a lot of organizations like, okay, we got this Teams thing. I guess we'll turn it on. You know, that's where they have 6 million more weekly active users than daily active users, right? Because I'm sure there are some organizations that's like, okay, yeah, we'll do this one thing in Teams, I guess. Uh, but I don't want to have to retrain our entire staff on it. And, you know, it, we'll, we'll dump some automatic updates in there. We'll use it as our HR board or something like that, right? Instead of, you know, having some terrible bulletin board in Outlook or something. But if you are someone that was like, hey, you know, this Slack company just IPO'd, maybe I want to invest in them, seeing this Microsoft uh, thing should be very, very concerning to you. Also, you still have Facebook out there trying to tell you that Facebook, is it Workplace? I think it's called Workplace, is going to be a thing. I'm super skeptical about that. You still have Google out there doing something with Hangouts. I don't know, but they can bundle that in with uh, uh, with Google Docs or, or G Suite now that they're calling it. And so the problem that Slack is they're, they're kind of going it alone. You could, you could say that's a strength in some ways. You know, as, as people become more skeptical of uh, getting kind of locked into these ecosystems, Slack is kind of a breath of fresh air in that it's, it's kind of its own thing. That's cool. But also businesses are lazy, and IT admins don't want to have to troubleshoot two different things. If they can have one throat to choke with Microsoft, I see that also having a lot of appeal as well, especially since you're already paying for it anyway, right? It's a harder conversation to have to go to the boss man 
and say, hey, we should pay for Slack. He's like, uh, we got this Teams thing. Just use that. It's it's good enough. Even if, you know, this isn't even talking about what has better features, you know, what what allows you to be more productive. That's a completely different conversation. This is purely a uh, IT is lazy sometimes, and they don't want to pay for stuff twice, and so that makes it very, very tough. I have seen people compare this to uh, what Instagram did to Snapchat, saying like basically they copied them feature for feature and rolled it out to a much broader platform, and then all of a sudden, you know, this is this is it makes it very tough for Snapchat to compete in this ephemeral messaging space, just as it does with Microsoft bundling that in. I think it. I, I really think they are fundamentally different, especially when you're talking about a paid service. I just think that Microsoft kind of fundamentally in its core gets productivity. Like I've said this before on the show, but Microsoft doesn't get a whole lot of stuff. Microsoft does not get mobile, right? Microsoft sometimes feel like they barely get operating systems. But productivity, it's just kind of in their bones. I would say they get cloud too as of I don't know, the last couple of years, they really are very smart in their moves there. But productivity, I mean, it's it's at the core of what they do. And anytime they get into a space, I, my tendency is to bet on Microsoft. Not that I'm, I'm rooting for them. I'm not. They're no longer the evil empire, but I still, I'm a former Linux hippie. I still can't root for Microsoft. First of all, you shouldn't root for any of these companies. But I'm just saying, don't bet against Microsoft when it comes to productivity. Speaking of things you shouldn't bet against, you should never bet against uh, cell carriers finding ways to make uh, all the money. But that's kind of what AT&T recently did. So uh, if you if you own uh, any kind of phone uh, device, whether it's a landline or a cell phone or anything like that, you may have heard of these things called robocalls. I don't know if you heard about that. I get about 6,000 of them a day. I basically just don't ever look at my, like I've uninstalled, I, like I wish I could uninstall the phone app. It's that useless to me. Uh, at this point. And there are a whole lot of structural reasons why in the U.S. it's particularly an acute problem uh, that I'm not necessarily going to get into. But there was a recent vote by the FCC that gave approval to carriers to bl- to give them the ability to block robocalls or to make it legal for them to like b- a blanket block robocalls or, or do their best efforts to do so. Uh, before that, there you like they couldn't offer it on a system wide level. It had to be more of a user opt in thing, and it was about theoretically it was about consumer rights, right? You don't want on the face of it. Before I knew robocalls were going to be literally make a phone unusable, I would have been skeptical to say, "Oh, Carrie's just going to block this and not kind of let you know." I'd been like, "Well, uh, I don't know if I'm cool with that. Uh, I'm cool with it." Now. <laughs> but anyway, there was an FCC vote a couple of weeks ago uh, that essentially gave approval for the carriers to do this. However. The big proviso there, because under the wonderful chairmanship of Ajit Pai, the FCC can't do anything that seems nice without being poisoned in some way. Uh, they basically said the carriers can offer this now. However, they're under no obligation to offer it for free to make your phone usable and open the door to all sorts of either paid prioritization or, um, or, or, or basically making it a paid service on top of their, you know, existing cell coverage. It shouldn't, you know, your phone shouldn't be usable just because you pay for a, a cell line, right? You should have to pay for a service on top of that. Well, AT&T has kind of offered a call protect service for a while now. It's essentially a robocall blocking service. 
uh, they had been offering this kind of as a as a opt in. You know, if you were on their service, you could download an app and kind of sign up. You had to, you had to go through a couple of hoops to do it, which I think is why it wasn't as popular as theoretically it should be. And now under this new uh, rule ruling from the FCC, they're actually going to be rolling this out by default to all new lines in order to kind of stem this tide of robocalls. And to a certain degree, it makes sense for AT&T. Uh, these calls do tie up lines. They are like tying up, like physically tying up resources and that kind of stuff. And they're actually doing it in a way that's not terrible because they're letting existing users opt into it, which I feel like is, again, even though robocalls are horrible, I still don't necessarily want to all of a sudden have it switch on without my say-so. And so existing users can kind of opt into it. I'm interested to see if this will be a competitive edge for AT&T. Because again, this is an opportunity where they could, you know, bilk more uh, average revenue per user out of someone, right? That's always the magic acronym that you'll hear from any carrier during any earnings call is ARPU, average earnings per user. And that's kind of the the sacred thing with all of these cell carriers, right? The fact that they're not doing that tells me that AT&T is hoping to make this some sort of competitive advantage. I mean, if you see an ad that says, hey, do you hate robocalls? Go to AT&T, it's free, right? Makes it, 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 one, it's a good sales pitch. Two, makes it very hard for any of their competitors to then charge it because they can run an ad that says, hey, Verizon and Sprint and everything else are evil. Spoiler, they're all evil. They're all horrible. <laughs> but, this is an interesting tact by AT&T to this horrific, horrific problem. And uh, no, Alan, on the live stream, I have not gotten a call from myself, although I've gotten ones very close. Like they've, the robocalls for a while had my first three digits, like the first three local digits of my number nailed down. But I think they went through all the permutations of those. And now I just get weird ones like from South Carolina and, and all over the place. It's truly a treat. And I feel blessed whenever I get them. It makes me know I'm never alone. Not to be left out here of uh, uh, potentially being horrible, uh, Uber added a new ride option called Uber Comfort, um, which to me is like kind of the opposite of an Uber pool, which should be called Uber Discomfort. Uh, But this is, you know, Uber runs these out from time to time. They have Uber Black. They have, you know, diamond levels. They have special reward levels. They have ultra premium. They have hey, I have a 30-year-old Prius that I'm going to drive you around in. And Uber Comfort is kind of the, you know, the spoil-yourself Uber that they've just kind of come out with. It says, okay, we're going to give you some more legroom. It's going to be in a mid-sized car. It's going to, you know, we're going to have to meet certain quality criteria before we'll certify it for this. And the drivers have to be at a certain rating, which is both dehumanizing and probably has no correlation to actual quality of the ride. The interesting thing that I thought uh, that stood out to me when I was kind of reading the the background on this when they were rolling it out is that as you know as uh, for the price premium that Uber Comfort warrants, you can now uh, like place special requests before you get in the car. So one of the examples that they gave was, hey, if you want it set to a certain temperature before you get in the car, when you you know when you hail the Uber, say, hey, could you have it set to seventy two degrees? It's a hot day. I'm in the airport. I want to be cool when I get in the car. Okay, that's you know what you're. What? If it's hot out, they're not going to have the AC on. Whatever. Okay. You can be particular. That's great. The more interesting thing, though, was the option where you can just let the driver know you don't want to talk to them, which already seems like, again, you're you're quantifying these drivers. I always, again, no one's forcing you to be an Uber driver. If you don't want to be an Uber driver, you don't have to be, I guess. But you're already so, there's so much pressure, I feel like, whenever you get an Uber 
the driver's just kind of like, hey, could you give me five stars? Otherwise, I get kicked off the platform. So these drivers already have to have an average of uh, 4.85 out of five ranking or higher, right? So it basically means one bad ride and you're off the service. So there's already all this pressure on them. And now you, you get this notification, hey, Rich wants a ride. And by the way, he doesn't want to talk to your, your and hear your terrible thoughts about what the weather is by the airport or something like that. And it just seems, could you be more jerky when you're getting your, your Uber? Yes, I know it's a service you're paying for. But I also feel like, hey, the acknowledgement that you're being driven around by human beings, maybe, maybe that would be nice. I don't know. Uh, but Uber Comfort uh, would make me so it would make me so uncomfortable knowing that I said, "Hey driver, don't talk to me when I get in the car." <laughs> it would the, the the silence would be deafening in the awkwardness, and it would make me uncomfortable, which seems to be the opposite of what Uber is is offering there. A couple other stories that we're not going to have time to get to, but I thought were pretty interesting. Uh, there was a report of a Google contractor uh, that had leaked a bunch of voice interactions with Google home devices to a Belgian public broadcaster. And basically what this guy's job was, was to transcribe these things from a Google home and feed them back into the system to try and optimize the voice recognition or to, to audit them to make sure that the, the Google AI was getting them right when they were transcribing them and stuff like that. The problem was, is that, so he supplied a thousand clips out of that thousand clips, about 150 of them were misspoken words. So people didn't mean to activate the Google home device. You, know, you say, hey, Google, and it activates it. Well, you if you don't say it, sometimes it just randomly activates. If anybody has any of these, whether you have an Echo or a Google Home or any of these devices, sometimes that happens. But the problem is when that happens, then you're getting snippets of conversations that people didn't want to get. And he said in some cases it was people talking about their health, people talking about getting into fights. And they said in some cases there were signs of distress or physical violence, basically saying, hey, Google has no way, for, like no recourse for me to say, hey, I think someone's life might have been in peril here or in a horrible situation or something like that. And again, it's anytime you're putting these kind of electronic devices in people's homes, you're, you're asking Google to make these decisions that they are fundamentally, or Google or Amazon or Microsoft or any of these companies, that they're fundamentally incapable of, of making the right call, even with the best of intentions. So I thought that was very interesting. And then uh, real quick, I'll just get on in this, that Amazon announced it plans to spend $700 million to retrain 100,000 U.S. employees by 2025, essentially taking people uh, from fulfillment centers, tech hubs, corporate offices, retail stores, and just basically uh, retraining them to jobs like, um, I'm looking here, uh, data mapping specialists, data scientists, solutions architects, security engineers, all that kind of stuff, you know, moving people from, uh, you know, more you know, quote unquote, skilled labor to more soft skills, more, more, uh, you know, IT kind of based roles. I think it's Google getting, or I'm sorry, I think it's Amazon getting ahead of the fact that they're going to probably be announcing by 2025 layoffs due to increased automation and trying to get some goodwill on top of that. Uh, but unfortunately, we are just about out of time here on your weekly tech news hour. After all, it is a 60 minute show. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next Monday uh, here on WRUW or in your podcatcher of choice. Uh, we're, we are go live on WRUW uh, from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, you can also, if you're my friend, watch it on Facebook. Maybe I'll set up a page so that people that aren't my friends can watch this. I don't know how much demand there is for that. Uh, but we will be getting out here. Uh, make sure you stay tuned for WRUW. Not Your Grandmother's Classical Music is up next. It's uh, always a good listen, so make sure you stay locked in for that. We'll be back next week. So until then, remember, everybody. And I should have queued up my music, which I didn't do. Have a super sparkly day.